Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Welcome to the 71st episode of the Promoter 101 podcast. I'm Luke Pierce with my colleague, Dan Steinberg. Hey, thanks, Luke. We have an exciting show for you featuring faculties, Jared Paul, discussing the success of NKOTB, Dancing with the Stars, and Sabrina Carpenter. Plus, DSP's shows, Dan Smalls, talks about being one of the top independent promoters in the game. And we've got a brand new war story from UTA's David Shapiro. All that in the news of the week. We want to thank everybody that reached out to share their positive feedback on last week's Michael Rapino interview. And if you haven't heard episode 70, it's available now, as all of our past podcasts are, at promoter101.net. Hi, it's Paola Palazzo from Live Nation Concerts Canada on Promoter 101. We are finishing up our world tour, but you can catch us live when we come to a town near you. For our international listeners, come hang with us at the Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington in London for the International Live Music Conference. That's I-L-M-C. That's Thursday, March 8th at 5 p.m. And Dan is going to be moderating Tales from the Frontline with manager Paul Crockford and guests including McNeil's Nikki Wright, Midas Promotions, Michael Hoskins, and Wizard Promotions in Germany's Ozzy Hope. Breaking news. Tuesday, July 24th, IVM's Venues Connect 2018 in Toronto with the Promoter Agent Panel. It's going to be a star-studded lineup with CAA's Brian Hill, APA's Ralph James, Emporium Presents Jason Zink, Frank's Productions' Charlie Goldstone, and Live Nation Canada's The Legend, Riley O'Connor. I'll be moderating. Toronto, can't wait to see you. Brand new panel. And I think maybe they'll even give us a little permission to record this one for the podcast. We'll have to see. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter. Keep up. I'm at W. Luke Pierce. Dan's at The Jew. And the show is at Promoters 101. That's Promoters plural. Feel free to reach out to us anytime you want by sending us an email at steiny at promoter101.net. You can reach both of us there. And as always, we promise one of us will respond to you in a timely manner. Hey, everyone. This is Cindy Lynott. I work at Works Entertainment, and I'm on Promoter 101. If you've missed any of our past podcasts, you can always catch up at promoter101.net. This week, we feature a classic reissue of episode 29. That podcast features IMPs and the 930 Club Seth Hurwitz. Also, legendary UK agent from ITB, Barry Dickens. And from PIL, Pigface, and Killing Joke, Martin Atkins. Plus, rising star on the move, APA's Ben Mensch. And it's probably about time that you actually subscribed to Promoter 101. It's not like this costs you anything. This is totally free. So sign up, subscribe wherever you podcast, and tell a friend about this. We'd love to hear some more listeners. Hi, it's Kim Badir with City of Tacoma Venues and Events, appearing on Promoter 101. Glad to represent all Canadians everywhere, particularly those who have landed in the U.S. of A., of the week. 
Kelly Blakely, the widow of Troy Blakely, reached out to us this week to ask us to clarify. Troy passed on February 10th due to pneumonia. It was unrelated to his past two bouts with cancer. He was 100% cancer-free. She wanted everybody to know that, and we wanted to make that correction. Our heart goes out to her and all of Troy's friends and family. It's time for the news of the week. Please welcome our buddy from Billboard Magazine and Amplify Magazine, Dave Brooks. Welcome, Dave. Thanks, Tiny. Glad to be here as always. What's going on in the world out there? Well, today uh, at Billboard, we're reporting Amazon UK's ticketing operation is shutting down. I had covered for a while that Amazon was trying to get in the ticket market in the US, but because of the exclusivity models used by Ticketmaster and our ticket companies, they're having a really hard time breaking through. They did have some success in the UK with Hyde Park, the O2, and some of the West End venues. And to surprise a lot of people today, they announced that they're also shutting down the UK operation. So I'm hearing from my sources they might come back with something a little more tech savvy next year. You know, maybe something that will tie into Alexa, that will to order tickets so it can echo or even a fire TV. But as of today, sales on the ticketing site have stopped. Yeah, Eventually, they were going to have to figure out what they couldn't sell. And apparently, tickets, that's the line. Because of the relationship-heavy aspect of ticketing, the contracts and exclusivity model, I think they came in just a little bit unprepared for what the business actually was. What's going on else in the world, my friend? Well, there's this interesting lawsuit I've been following in federal court with Universal Attractions, and it has to do with the I Love the 90s tour. You're talking vanilla, ice, salt and pepper, Spinderella, all for one, Color Me Bad, Coolio, Tone Loke, Rob Bates, Young MC. That shit, right? Yeah, all those guys kind of packaged into one tour. It came out really strong. They blew out expectations in a lot of markets. They came back for a second run and sold like 140 tickets. So Universal Attractions took it a step further and filed a suit against Ticketmaster. What they were basically saying was that Ticketmaster, by only showing some of the premium products during the pre-sale, that made everybody think the show was only selling VIP tickets tickets. It was too expensive. And they argued that killed the show. Last week, a judge tossed out the lawsuit, basically saying you can't blame the ticketing company for showing prices to some seats and claiming false advertising. That's not what false advertising is, legally speaking. So it didn't get a lot of attention, but I think it was an interesting case about how tickets are priced. Hey, Dave, I'm hearing some rumblings going on up north. What's going on up there? One of the biggest bands in Canada, Headley, who's been a nonstop touring force for over 10 years, recently several of Allegations were made against the band, some going back a decade of sexual misconduct, of some cases issues with minors and some ugly incidents. Some have come up anonymously, some not. And that has just led to a downfall for the band as everybody just runs for the hills. They're supposed to be on the Junos, which is Canada's own Grammys. That was canceled. They've been canceled from the Junos. The Junos have not been canceled, correct? That's correct. They've been banned from CBC Radio and Sirius XM in the country. They've been dropped by the Feldman Agency and their managers at Watchdog Management. So, If you look at how the band's doing on its tour dates in the wake of these allegations, 
It hasn't really seemed to impact attendance. They just played Ottawa, and it was a nearly sold-out show. So probably the long-term prospects aren't great. We have this many people in the industry abandoning them, but the fans are still coming out. You hate to see a downfall of a band like that, but certainly more upsetting is these allegations. And it'd be sad to find out that they're true, but seeing management and an agency as strong as them run away from an act like that and drop them kind of leads you to believe they're where there's smoke, there's fire, right, Dave? It's too soon to say definitively what happened and what didn't, but to have such swift distancing from agency and management and radio, got to make you wonder what people are saying. Anything positive in the world you want to add your two cents on right now? You feeling good? Things good in your world? Oh, yeah. It's kind of a slow news time right now. It always kind of is in February. Thinking of some of the big features we could work on, you know, kind of do some enterprise reporting until, you know, the shit hits the fan again and we can get back to covering the scandals of the world. I see the lovely pictures of the baby and the puppy on Facebook. And we know that you're just raising them up quick. And it's just a beautiful thing, man. Congratulations on the healthy family. Thank you. Wes just turned one and he's a force of nature. And it's been, it's pretty cool that I get to spend a lot of time with him, you know, being working close to home and just watching him grow up. And we can hear the puppy in the background. So clearly he's still going strong. <laughs> he sure is. I thought putting him in the backyard would be enough to keep him quiet during the podcast, but he's making his voice heard. Hey, he gets to be famous too, right, Dave? That's how it's supposed to work. Dave Brooks, thank you so much for joining us on Promoter 101, giving us the news of the week. It's always my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Hi, it's Kira Finkenberg. I'm the marketing and ticketing guru for Andy Hewitt and Bill Silva Presents. I'm on Promoter 101. And finally, we want to take a moment to shine a spotlight on Rocks Off Jake Snufarovsky, this week's Badass of the Week. He's an amazing guy, promotes shows in the biggest market in the world and most competitive, New York City, and promotes shows by land and sea. That's a true statement. He actually promotes shows on the water. And just a great dude, making him this week's Promoter 101 Badass. Badass of the week. Congrats goes out to you, Jake. This is Lenore Kinder. I work for AEG Presents, and you're listening to Promoter 101. In our feature interview this week, we've got a special interview with faculty's Jared Paul discussing his successes with New Kids in the Block, Dancing with the Stars, and Sabrina Carpenter. Jared Paul's with us. Welcome to Promoter 101. Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You were a venue guy, now you're a manager, you work with some boy band that now they're selling out stadiums under your guidance, you have an acapella act that went from TV and yet seemed to manage to stick around and built their own career. They sure have. You've got some other artists that have gone from the TV side of things and Disney into their own world. You're playing in all those lands and Dancing with the Stars is your baby too. That's right. I've actually been working on Dancing with the Stars for 11 years, believe it or not. It's been an unbelievable journey and where they're currently on a sold out 60 to 8 tour. That is a uh, amazingly fun phone call when you get the Dancing with Stars call because you know eventually it's going to sell out. Let's start in the venue side of things. DC, right? Yeah, I booked what was the MCI Center. It's had a couple names, uh, but I'll call it the MCI Center. It's the building where the NBA and the NHL play. When MCI was still a company. Right. They called it the phone booth. It opened in 1997, I believe, and I got there not long after, and I was eventually promoted to be the director of entertainment. So I booked that building for five years, and it was in my early 20s. And it was an unbelievable experience. You're booking arena shows as a 20-year. And- exactly. And like in making deals with everyone from, you know, Mitch Rose to Jerry Barrett, heavy hitters, people I luckily still do business with today. But so I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area and got to go and work at my hometown arena. But what happened was I was in college. I was booking shows for the University of Maryland. You know, what most people do, the student board. I got an internship. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Poland had, when he built the MCI Center, he promoted all of the people that he called 
called the Capital Center family. So there were people that had been working for him for 20 plus years, and that's who ended up running the brand new $220 million state-of-the-art facility. And as he started to sell off assets and start to map out his retirement plan, he felt that it was necessary to give people who had been with him a long time a golden parachute if they wanted to take it. And every single person in my department, the booking department, all took an 18-month buyout, an optional buyout. And I was literally this fresh out of college guy raising my hand saying, I still work here. You're the last guy on the bench? Exactly. A woman named Susan O'Malley, who was the president of Washington Sports Entertainment, gave me my chance. And she walked into Mr. Poland and she said, I know we've been out there headhunting for this position. And the man who'd done this job before me, his name is Pat Dar, had done his job for 28 years. And he, on his last day of work, told Susan O'Malley, he said, give that kid six months, he'll be able to do my job. He used to call me a wonder boy. And, uh, and I owe a lot to him and, and Susan and Mr. Poland. And so I was booking everything from uh, WWE to Disney on Ice to lots of different things, all the major concerts in Washington, where uh, we had a very colorful cast of promoters with Seth. And at that time, Ted Mankin came to town. And Brian O'Connell uh, was in the cellar door office at that time, later became SFX. I was, I was an intern there as well before I ultimately got the job at the MCI Center. So I worked for Jack and Dave and worked with people like Jeff Gordon, Brian O'Connell as well in the door office and then got this full-time job that turned into a booking guy where I eventually, as Irving put it, ran away with the circus to come turn Irving Aves off about 15 years ago in Los Angeles. That is just an amazing list of names that, well, you just dropped, but damn. I'm lucky to call them friends. Yeah, I was, it was, that was the ride. I've come up with these amazing people. I, I saw Brian O'Connell this summer. He had FGL at Fenway and I had new kids the next night. Did you guys share steel? We did. We, There's nothing more yeah, intimate we, we, than that we, in this well, industry, we, is there? Yeah, we bumped steel. It was it was nice. I wasn't expecting that here all night. Um, but yeah, so uh, the, we had it was an amazing time pre consolidation, and I eventually was at the arena booking shows. But I think one of the things that I think really changed my career forever is that not only was I getting to work alongside at the time what was Concerts West and John and Paul and, and those guys, and they were building their company to be the indoor company when uh, SFX at the time was the outdoor company. So I was an indoor guy trying to book uh, shows, but I was in need of content. And I saw lots of different kinds of shows, whether they were comedy shows or whether they were you know family entertainment. I just got a diverse uh, education and got some amazing relationships that I built on. And that kind of led me to want to uh, be a content provider. And I ran away with Irving Azoff to the, join the circus. When you start in the arena, most people have a hard time backfilling and learning the rudiments of the clubs and the theaters and developing acts. And you have done a good job in your management world of developing acts through the clubs and theaters right into the arenas and now stadiums, apparently. I did buy at my size venue. So we had a network at University of Maryland of clubs to theaters to arenas okay, and so stadiums. So your early days as a student, yeah, you'd learn that. student buyer. And then also, they don't do it any longer from what I understand. But Mike Evans, he started working for a Poland, an organization called Music Center. So a lot of people don't know this, but they're very ahead of their time. Uh, Abe Poland, he invented the telescreen. It was the first arena in the country to have a telescreen. It was the first arena in this country to have premium seats. They had suites. They were an afterthought. They were all the way up in the upper deck. They were the worst seats ever, but he was ahead of his time and he actually got into the venue management business. They managed several buildings, including Patriot Center. It now is a new name, uh, Eagle Bank and in uh, Fairfax, spoke by Barry Geisler, another great friend. And Music Center, which is a company that I ultimately took over when Mike was had left the company by the time I got there, we bought shows. So I would call 
John Brannigan. And when Tool was going out on the road and they were looking at all kinds of options, I was making percentage of the gross deals and I was promoting the show. But I would also, I would book shows at Patriot Center because it was our job to help program the building. I'd book everything from country to, every, these were not nationally packaged tours. Nobody was packaging those at the time other than maybe early days with uh, some of the George Strait stuff. But other than that, you could call an agent and buy those dates locally and they let you make a fixed promoter profit, which was nice. The good old days. Before BOC and Louie like changed the um, game. Brian, again, Brian O'Connor was in the DC office. This is pre-Nashville for him. Right. I mean, they had the amphitheaters down there. So he had a run of markets he was already doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. But we bought shows. And so I think that a lot of my experience buying shows when I was a building guy and buying them, I would rent local venues. So because I, I recognized that I couldn't just be the guy that called an agent looking to buy an arena date, even when they weren't all nationally purchased for the most part. But anyway, we I bought shows. And I think that's maybe where I built some of my experience as a manager, understanding all sides of venues and artist development. You found a different way to do this. And before I move on, I do want to note that you're partners with Luke Pierce, who's involved with the podcast. You guys co-manage Home Free together. I want to yeah. state that for the record. Luke is fantastic. Uh, him, David, and I work together on that. We found them through our relationship with the TV show Sing Off. But I'm sure we'll get into a little bit of some of that part of my business as well. TV is an interesting place where you can develop to the mass audience much quicker. I run an interesting business in that I love getting to be an artist manager. And my management style is extremely hands-on. And so my business is designed to only have a, a handful of clients. And I'm very blessed that I work with clients that are global names and some tour stadiums and arenas and some don't. And we're developing them. We get involved at all levels of artist careers and do a fair amount of talent scouting ourselves if we think there's something that's missing out there. But when I came out here to work for Irving Azoff about 15 years ago, and I had had that diverse experience in the arena business and getting a chance to work on all kinds of events, one of the events that actually turned my head was I had bought from Carl Fried, the first ever American Idol date, uh, the first American Idol tour, he had bought the tour, uh, his company, and I bought it for myself in DC because I was programming my building in the middle of the summer. I, my wife and I watched that first season. I bought it for a lot less than I sell theater tours for now. And um, we broke with 11,000 on the first day. I think that date got to 15 plus, very happy. And I saw in that show and that tour that there was a connection point between what people watch and what they might go see live. And when I was working for Irving, credit to him, he brought me out from Washington to Los Angeles, told me uh, that he thought I could make a great manager, but ultimately, uh, he didn't give me artists. Uh, I was I was working alongside him on certain clients, but my job was to take what he had built and try to find opportunities. And he also said, I don't want you to spend your time going up to the strip and telling me how you fell in love with a band that you were going to break into the next Bruce Springsteen. And I respect that. That's really not necessarily how that company runs. Not to say he doesn't do tons of artist development, but the expectations were that I was going to find something that was a bit further along. And so one of the things I knew I needed to do was to make something happen. And uh, I look back on that experience and recognize that he he found this nice kid from DC and he gave me a chance, but ultimately I needed to bear fruit and I needed to prove that that was a worthwhile decision on his part. So I made things happen in lots of different ways. But one of the ways I made things happen was by looking at opportunities like a TV show. 
that is torable that might need the same services as a manager but they're not putting out records they don't they're not going to hire a management company but they need some of what we sell they need some of what our our system can do no different than what we were doing for christina aguilera journey or the eagles at the time we essentially we took a tv show and we brought it to life that's led to quite a business for me dancing with the stars which was an arena tour at the time is now a theater tour quite successfully led to uh glee which uh, i walked alongside uh 20th century fox and ryan murphy and Mitch Rose, a CAA on to Big Time Rush to sing off. We've done America's Got Talent. We do Dancing with the Stars. And then we've actually created tours for people that might not necessarily be able to tour without someone like us. So Julianne and Derek Huff is an example of a tour where we created that. I mean, you know, dancers don't have hit songs. They can't just play a set list. So we work alongside them and we we do the role of a manager in terms of knowing where to play and, and how to put a tour together, but also the creative side of it. It's fascinating because you're looking at something that has completely different metrics. Yeah. I'd like to say that we found out over time what that audience wanted. In fairness, it was a very successful arena tour based on the numbers. But we did find that once you get to the 400 level, it's really hard to put people in those seats to watch dance. Well, you can't see the feet. Yeah, it's, it's a different show. I mean, that was a different time. Julianne Huff on tour one was a background dancer. And now she's a movie star and, and a massive star. So these dancers, having been on the air for so long, have become stars in their own right. We used to tour six or seven celebrities and the background dancers, the pro dancers were really there to support them. It's inverted now. So now we have a, a troop full of 10 amazing, very famous professional dancers and usually a star. And yes, being in a velvet seat proscenium theater or a Radio City Music Hall it is our, one of our largest venues. It works. It's what people want. And I'd rather add a double if it's there. It does seem to lend itself to theaters. That's where the experience seems to be best. That's why Broadway plays theaters and not arenas. That's one of the biggest lessons I've learned through my production company. And I think it's it definitely overlapped with my management company is it's very sexy to play an arena. I mean, I, when I left the MCI Center, I, I remember my goal was to be able to make it back as a manager of an act that could sell it out. And I'm very blessed that I've done it more than once. And it's humbling. But at the end of the day, you know, it's a huge business out there. And there's many, many venues at many sizes. And the quality of a show and the economics and the volume of places you can play. I mean, there's a PAC or an Indian casino, it seems like every 50 miles in this country at this point, and they all need shows. And I'm not going to deliver them every one of them, but I'm, I'm happy to deliver them plenty of them. We can't skip over NKOTV. We got to talk about it. It is by far one of my proudest achievements in life. And they deserve everything that they've earned. And I think the reason why I can sit here with you 10 years, believe it or not, we actually just a week ago was the 10 year reunion of the little snippet we put on the internet. Then when they left the business, they didn't even have a website. That's how long ago it was. We acquired a website from their fans, newkidsontheblock.com, and we posted a little sizzle that Donnie Wahlberg edited, which was the first tease 10 years ago. And then they announced their reunion on the Today Show in April, 10 years ago as well. And they're a real life Rocky story. These are guys from the streets of Boston. Everyone thinks they were, you know, a Lou Pearlman-esque, you know, manufacturer band and no disrespect to the bands that were that because I'm friends with many of them and they're unbelievable talents in their own right and deserve everything they've accomplished. But at the end of the day, the new kids are guys from the streets of Boston and they have talent and drive. I went to their first meet and greet uh, when we signed the Interscope Records that we did for, for Brenda Romano. And I had never seen a band hug their fans the way the new kids hug their fans. I've never seen a band give out their cell phones the way they give it out. I've been on buses with them where they've given fans rides. I'm sleeping with one eye open thinking
thinking I'm going to get killed. Is this something that came from doing mall tours like Tiffany style back in the original day? Uh, they, yeah, they just built it brick by brick. They were that way then. I think they appreciate it more now. Would have been better had you said step by step. Yeah, right? there you go. Yeah. There you go. They are salt of the earth. They're, they're not only talented, but they're real guys. And I think getting to work with them as grownups, getting to work with them at a time where we built it together, it's a collaboration. I could only book seven concerts. We booked seven. We couldn't book a tour. We booked seven shows and there were trigger points in the deal that if it sold a certain amount of tickets in a certain amount of time, they'd pick up the other 10. That tour sold a million tickets and did 200 shows. I think we're up somewhere above 3 million tickets now. And they just finished what is maybe their biggest tour we've done in North America. We did 500,000 paid and grossed $40 million. So it's a blessing. I'm honored to work with them. I'm honored to consider them friends. They earn every dollar the hard way. They just do. They just put on a great show and they give their fans a great night out. We don't come too often. One of the things I learned from Irving is how can they miss you unless you go away? You know, we don't want to overplay our hand. We don't want to overstay our welcome. It's a great night out, but it's not every six months. And you're selling tickets hand over fist. And there's lots of different flavors for lots of different people. Part of what's been successful for new kids is the packaging you've done on each of those tours has been outstanding. Also notice that you guys were able to get involved with Fuller House directly correlates to that audience. What a great crossover promotion. First of all, thank you. Um, we earn every dollar, like I said. So I think where some bands get into trouble or tours for that matter that aren't musical acts is, you know, they're road dogs and they hit it hard and they don't come back with a reason why people should come this time if they've just been in town a year or two at times ahead, two years ahead. Really with all of my projects, I try to take a step back and recognize that we have to win people over every time unless you're touring behind a hit single. And lucky uh, that I get to do that as well. But being beholden to a hit single or being beholden to radio or streaming play these days is not a place I want to be. Most of my projects are community-based. I grew up as I mentioned before, I, you know, Into the Dead and Fish, and I was part of those communities. And I, I've really tried to work with artists to understand the value of their fan base and treat it with respect. I learned a lot from being a part of a community, and I want to work with artists that actually want, want to be a part of a community too. So, Well, there's an infrastructure to that and the community related, and you can obviously see that with new kids if that's how they're correlating with their fans, that they're handing out cell phones. They spend a tremendous amount of time talking to me about whatever they're hearing from the fans directly. They have their own little focus groups. They have their own friendships. They know what's going on. They know when there's a problem. I solved those problems. This week, we're putting our 10th cruise on sale and it was came from the band. We felt that we hadn't done enough for the fans that had actually been on all 10 cruises or will be about to go on their all 10 cruises. And so they came up with all these ideas of things we can do to honor those people, including a, basically a concierge level service to book their cabins so they don't have to get back in line with everyone else. Or, you know, They do things like that. They think about these people. But the packaging thing is just value for money. You know, I am the focus group as well. I, I'm surrounded by their fan base and I just give people a night that they can't miss. And, you know, I hope that we'll be able to continue uh, the business for a very long time if, we, if we're smart about it. But we want to give people a great night out and nostalgia is important. And why not showcase the artists that they want to see? Well, let's talk about playing Boston in the stadium. It's a ballsy move. We've done it twice. You're selling sheds though. And I know it's the home market, but the thought process of going in where you had the infrastructure already built into the shed or the arena versus 
putting up a stage and clearly Live Nation, you can figure out how to share steel. But you're putting up a stage, you're paying for that infrastructure, you paid for at least half of it. Yeah, we actually only shared steel once. The first time we went in as an isolated show and I spec my own stage, which was really pretty. It was something that John Bon Jovi built for Central Park that Stage co-owned. And I'm like, I don't want to put this giant skin stage in Family Park. It's to be, let's do this thing that barely had rain cover and we got soaked, but we pulled the show off. It was legendary. It was a slip and slide. If you put a cover, you can't see the video from the back of the house. There's a standardized stage now that all the baseball parks are looking to put in their outfield. So there's not a lot of discussion when it comes to that these days, but they've gotten very smart about that. And Live Nation is now, and other promoters, of course, uh, Louis Messina and those that are doing a lot of stadium business. So, you know, the, the sophistication's there. And now, of course, with the Wrigley's and the Fenway's, they're booking a concert series. I saw a handful of these this year where you're seeing two or three nights in the stadium. God bless those bands. Sticking up two at once is not my style. One plus one is the safer move. And, uh, you know, it's like Dennis Arfa, like wants to, re- I was learning that when I was a building guy when we had Billy and Eldon and all the, and Billy Solo. I, I was impressed at how much money he insisted on spending on breaking the second show. He just, he wanted it to be news. He didn't. And I, I paid attention to that. I thought that was interesting. But to be quite honest, every time I don't trust my gut in my career, it's usually wronged me. And, and sticking up two at once is, I mean, for the bands that can do it, especially the destination-based bands to show their fans that this is a weekend, God bless that that works for them. But it seems to always bite me in the ass. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, it's in, it's easier to do in the theaters and the stadiums. That's a big swing. Well, I've been a building guy. I've been a promoter. I've never been an agent, but I, I've been a manager. And I think one of the things that was really dumb of me, I, when I had money at risk or just care about my ticket sales on the building side of things or as a promoter, I mean, I lose a lot of sleep about my ticket counts. And I, I remember romanticizing about the fact that when I became a manager, a big content provider, I'm not going to have to worry about ticket counts. I worry more now about ticket counts and the aesthetics of a building that isn't full than I've ever worried because I, it's it's my name on the line. You were just as concerned about how it looks is how the deal did, how the band's going to feel about it when they take a stage and how the fans see the vision of that band. Absolutely. But I also don't believe you get rich off the broken backs of your promoters. So, I mean, at the end of the day, I really do believe there's no bad shows, just bad deals. And I, I think that if you look at the way I've structured my business, if I've earned it, I get paid it. And not to say that we don't have shows to lose money. And it's not to say that I don't try to right the wrongs if I can, not always my decision. Uh, But at the end of the day, um, yeah, I absolutely study a seating chart, study scalings, look at flexing. I I mean, I, I really care. It upsets me if I'm in a venue and it doesn't look amazing. And the times I feel I've contributed to that by making a mistake, obviously we all make mistakes. I learned from it, but back to Fenway, a ballsy move, really happy we got it right, happy we got it right twice. Definitely a dream of the band. Donnie Wahlberg went to see Aerosmith and and called me and said, we have to do this. And I knew that getting them on top of the Green Monster was going to be the top of the mountain for those guys. I remember the first time, it was NKOTBSB, so it was was a co-headline the first time. And the second time was a full headline, New Kids show. We just did that on the most recent tour. And they do a variety of pre-sales there, of course. The New Kids audience isn't necessarily going to be in alignment for every venue pre-sale, depending on what the audience is of that pre-sale, if it's sports-related or suite-related or what have you. And the Red Sox, they have, it goes up like full game packages and then it goes to like 10 game packages and then you get into like Live Nation pre-sale, what have you. And the, when the first one went up sale, like the people that have had Red Sox tickets their whole careers, I like shit my pants. 
because the count was really average. Right, because these are hardcore baseball these are fans. These not our they're fans. Not, right. and, and, you know, their, their wives might be. Yeah, and I you know, obviously, Don Law and Dave Marsden really believed in us and, and Larry Cancro at the Red Sox. I mean, they backed us, but within three hours, it was fine. The date sold out on, on sale. But, uh, you know, it's like you talk about seeing your life flash before your eyes. Talk about sticking a stadium show up and, and thinking you got it wrong. Yeah, there's that moment on everything where we all second guess it 10 seconds before it comes up. I don't care who you are. You're risking the house you're going to worry about it. And that's going to push you to sell harder. I do the same thing. If I acquire uh, the rights to something or if I sign an act or you know, anything. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you don't know until you know. But I think we just try really hard to set our tours up on a national level. You mentioned some of the stuff we do in national marketing. We work alongside people like yourselves. We believe in national pushdown marketing strategy. So especially on the TV stuff that we do or the new kid stuff, even if it's not a nationally sold tour, we have an in-house marketing team and faculty and we will come up with uh, what we feels a reasonable amount of money to ask promoters to contribute from their local marketing campaign that we can go and do Ellen or the Today Show. Because those bookings, I think, do as much to sell tickets locally as buying uh, you know, local digital or radio, what have you. But you guys can't coordinate those things and they're very expensive. So we, we work really hard with our promoters on our marketing campaign. I think that makes a difference. So my daughter is the biggest fan of the world of Girls Meets World and seems to think that you have the greatest client of all time. Sabrina Carpenter. Absolutely. You guys played small theaters and slammed them everywhere and did a global tour, right? She's actually going to Japan right now for four shows and looks like they're all going to sell out, which is really exciting. She's a a natural wonder. Just came from meeting with her at a record label playing new music and talking about all sorts of new rollout strategies we can come up with that aren't so, you know, kind of old school. She is her audience, which is so cool, but she doesn't want it to be defined by the fact that she made a television show. I think it's part of the way that your, your daughter might know her, but we were hoping that they were social media and through her music. And now she's, I mean, she's got a feature with the Lost Kings right now. She's being embraced by her peers now, which is something we fought really hard for because I knew how talented she was. I knew how much she could write. I knew what she could sing, but it's, it is a little bit tough, you know, being a prodigy as well as coming off of a, of a kids oriented TV show, but so did Drake and, and so did lots of people. So there, you know, there's a new world out there. Well, talk about job security. I mean, how much longer are the new kids going to tour? The guys are getting a little bit older, but she's got a full life ahead of you can be commissioning that for a very long time. We are building that business. I mean, as the people that have been walking along our side, it you know, it's not an overnight thing, but she's been at it nonstop, really successful theater level touring. We're going to build it brick by brick. That's just true artist development. We're going to put out a lot of music. We're going to tour globally. She's open for some people. We'd like to do more of that. You are involved with many other aspects of the business. In particular, Home Free is something we're deep involved with as well, as we mentioned earlier. When you saw a package of the concept of acapella touring and that TV level, that was a different world. What led you to believe that acapella could sustain national TV power and tour like that. Having had the experience of being someone that can go in and speak to a TV studio about putting something on the road, I saw that that TV show clearly had an audience. And one of the other things that it had was it had uh, a built-in base of talent that was obligated to tour. And those things together can make an interesting match. So we had a good relationship with the team at the network. So we were able to not only talk to Sony about those rights, but also know that we would be able to get some on-air support in terms of telling people about the tour. But I think the key that made that tour work and was exciting and that ultimately yielded home free was, again, another community-based genre. That, I mean, acapella at the time, this is really, PTX was sort of 
just beginning to happen. Obviously, they came off the show. But at the time we were touring that, they were really just about to explode. And the show had a loyal audience. It didn't have a humongous audience, but it had a loyal audience and enough to support a theater tour business. How much of the timing was Glee and Pitch Perfect? I surely think it helped. Uh, more Pitch Perfect than Glee. than Glee at that time had started to wind down. Again, we would have loved to have taken Pitch Perfect in some form out on the road, but that was not something that they had their talent aligned to do. We learned that when David Britz or Luke Pierce tell you something that you just follow that lead because it usually doesn't do anything but bring money home. I don't think we ever saw ourselves as becoming acapella heavy company, but there was some timing and some synergy that Andrea Johnson had put us in the right place with David and we kind of fell into that. They have a point of view and I think that's what makes them interesting. There's a lot of great acapella acts. They were a very polished act who already had done a lot of dates and that's becoming more and more common now with reality-based competition shows. Even though luckily uh, the acts on Sing-Off were obligated to tour just like an act who goes on American Idol or, or The Voice. TV has a value that you certainly never know how strong and how far reaches. People go home and sit in front of the TV. You just can't undervalue that. Broadcast television has an older audience. These are people that are looking for things to do. I'm blessed for that. I'm blessed that they watch Dance of the Stars every week and they might come see our shows or go see Julianne and Derek or the other shows we've gotten to be a part of. But yeah, Home Free built an audience that way and they've built with your support as well. And of course, they've done well in the PAC world. So there's something you guys do with the TV products that we've learned to ask the question. And that is you're showing a family-friendly project on TV, when it shows up, is the affiliate going to be mad at me the next day? I know when your name is on a show, I'm not going to have to worry that Dancing with the Stars is going to be topless this night. No, uh, it's only happened a couple nights because of malfunctions. Really? Oh, yeah. The dancers actually wear undergarments to prevent a true experience that would be X-rated. So you guys they're, they're Janet very, Jackson Super Bowl moment? It's never going to happen on one of our shows. They're quite smart. That really affects our life with the affiliate in the market. If I don't have NBC to help me sell a show that they aired, I got no show. Not every television show that is on the road belongs on the road. That's for sure. And I, you know, I've learned that the hard way as well. I mean, there are just well, a lot of them lose money. Yeah. They, well, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it, it just needs to be a show that lends itself to a live performance. You've got acts on all levels, established across all genres. All the networks know you. All the different properties. You can pretty much pick your next play. That gives you a lot of opportunity, but a lot of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, for faculty, the future is bright, and we're humbled to work with the amazing artists we work with. We've signed some new clients recently. It's interesting how our experiences with some of these TV shows have lent us to things like Home Free. We recently started working with Leah Michelle, who of course I know from Glee, and I'm really excited to continue working with her to build her live touring business because she truly is our generation Streisand, and she's going to continue to build brick by brick a big live touring business, maybe through some packaging or through some, you know, there's all kinds of stuff we can do with Leah globally. And what we've done so far has done really well. You found your direction. You don't necessarily have to be everything to everyone. And I'm going to start to build more shows that are not licensed and they're ones that we come up with ourselves. Our first uh, foray into that is actually not a live show. It's a new experiential uh, walkthrough themed exhibit called Happy Place. I don't know if you've heard about this, but we've, we, we are in the process of moving to our second location in Los Angeles. We're opening late April at the event deck at LA Live and it's a 20,000 plus square foot immersive exhibit where you go room to room and every single room is something that represents happiness. So I've got a confirmation 
confetti dome. I've got a birthday room. I've got a candy room. I've got a hugs and kisses room. And we have done unbelievably well with it. We've got tremendous press support, a tremendous creative team behind it, working with a lot of the same people that I create my live shows and, and a curated a whole long list of artists who've come in. And you basically come through the experience. It's very family oriented and uh, you pay an admission. It's a timed entry. And we've marketed it like we'd market a live event and you line up and you come at, at your time. So it's like a tea time like for golfing? Uh, every 30 minutes. We sold out our initial run of dates in Los Angeles and found some challenges with the initial building. And we decided to, instead of delaying the process, we are actually investing in our portable version. So it's actually, it's first stop on what will be a global tour is Los Angeles for a second run to continue the unfinished business we have in Los Angeles. We are opening for five weeks at, at LA Live. And then where we go next is to be determined, but it's a lot of fun. It's called Happy Place. But almost all of our challenges with Happy Place have been related to its success, uh, how to deal with it, the popularity. I want to thank you so much for taking time and talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. Jared is one of the smartest and most well-liked managers in the business today. It's easy to see why he's doing so well. Lucy Lawler Fries, Rival Entertainment and the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm on Promoter 101. Tweet. Tweet. Tweets of the week. It's that time of the show. Let's talk about Promoter 101 tweets of the week. Let's see what's going on in Dan's twisted mind this week. Let's start here. When you see a B3 on stage, you know shit is about to get real. I find this to always be true. Shout out to Tedeschi Trucks Band at the Ryman this weekend. Can't wait. The opening act tends to be treated as an unwanted stepchild. Be careful. They may turn out to be real rock stars. Opening acts are like freshmen in our business. Just remember, you were a freshman too once and treat them a tad better with that in mind. That moment when you see the artist that passed on your history for more money only to be listed on Groupon. Oh, you got to love this karma. Always awesome. That'll do it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at The Jew. This is Marcia Vlasic, president of AGI Talent Agency on Promoter 101. This week, we've got an epic war story from UTA's Dave Shapiro. Dave Shapiro, what do you have for us today? You know, I'll give you a little insight into like the daily life of an agent. And I think that the reason I think this story is so funny is because it really goes to show that what we do for a living has a lot more to do with psychology than it does with any other skill, I think. I think that the way that you can manage dealing with artists and managers and promoters and everything else is really to understand people, right? If I'm selling you a show, right, I'm going to talk to you differently than if I'm selling, you know, this other guy's show that I know kind of has a certain personality or whatever, right? Like you have to really be able to read the room. So this is a story that I have from many years ago with an artist I was representing. We'll call him Monkey Breath for the moment. Sure. Monkey Breath. We were doing this tour once and the singer of this band was very emotional, not the most rational, logical thinking person. We were planning a headline tour and we wanted to book a specific band to be direct support on that tour. So it ends up, we make the offer to this band and they come back and they're like, listen, we really appreciate the offer. We, we would have loved to do this tour, but we're going to be in Europe then. Timing's not going to work. That happens. No big deal. Move on and look for other acts, right? Well, I deliver the news and this particular band member, the singer of this band, proceeds to lose it. You know, fuck this band. We'll never tour with them again. They won't cancel their European dates to tour with us. That's bullshit. Like, we will never offer them another tour. So this was kind of the response I got. It's like, okay, well, whatever. They're not going to be on the tour anyway, so he can feel the way he wants to feel about it. That's fine. About a year later, we were booking the band's next headline tour. We're trying to figure out who we want to offer the tour to. And I call management and I say, hey, I know who we should offer this tour to. And I say the same 
same band name that we offered the tour to the year prior that the singer lost his shit over. And they were like, Dave, you understand. Do you remember? We were told, fuck this band. They will never play another tour with us, et cetera, et cetera. I was like, oh, I remember. They're like, so why are you bringing it up? I was like, they're the right band for the tour and they're who we should have. And they're like, we get it. We agree with you. That's never going to happen. I said, yes, it is. Trust me on this. I want to test something out. Let's call the singer right now. Just follow my lead. I had a good enough relationship with these managers where they didn't really ask too many questions. They're like, yeah, we trust you. All right, let, let's do this. So we call the singer, <laughs> we get him on the phone and he's like, hey, what's going on guys? And say, hey, you know, we want to talk to you about this tour and we think we have the right band to play direct support on this tour. And he's like, oh, awesome. Who is it? And I said, all right, well, I don't know if you remember, but about six months ago, you and I had a conversation and you brought up the idea that we should offer this band the next tour. And I thought it was such a brilliant idea of yours. I really think that this is the offer we need to make. And he was like, oh, wow, I'm so glad you agree with me. Like, let's do it. Let's go make that offer. They took it and toured with Monkey Breath? They did. Yep. And all we did was, you know, basically convince him that it was his idea. Thank you so much, Dave. That's hilarious. Thank you. Dave is an agent that is just killing it right now. Full interview coming up with him in just a few weeks. He's got some amazing hobbies like skydiving and he's an amazing pilot. So you're going to want to catch that. Hi, it's Marcy Allen, president of Mac Presents and honored to be on Promoter 101. We're joined next by DSP Show's Dan Smalls talking about being one of the top independent promoters in the game. Dan Smalls, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. We saw Soda Jerk pull out of Denver and give their rooms to Live Nation. We saw the Franks Brothers fall to Live Nation. It seems like a trend. There's a lot less of us. In some ways, it's creating more honor, I think, for what it is. You know, every, everybody wants to cash out, I guess, but I don't know. I wouldn't change what I'm doing for the world. John Sanders and I have been together for three years as partners, and we fucking love it. We don't answer to anybody. And it's we're in these secondary markets in the Northeast. So, you know, maybe the day could come down the road, but I, I never thought about it. I've never, ever thought about where we're headed. It's just been how we can do good stuff each day. You know, you've not thought about it at all. I never thought of us in the same vein as that. I, I don't know. Maybe we're starting to make a name people are paying attention to. I still think of myself as the guy that lives in Ithaca, New York and has a couple of cool rooms and has built a really nice boutique outdoor venue. And that's really the extent of it, you know, but in the last couple of years, since John and I got together, North Hampton came with him and it grew from there. So maybe, maybe we're starting to see some credibility and that's awesome. I don't know. I guess everybody has a number people say all the time. I, I was at a lunch today and asked the same question and I, I don't know how to answer it. Where are you at with that? I think me and Jason decided 29 million would get it done today. So we're in the same ballpark. If they throw 58, let's I mean, 30 seems greedy, it. but 29, 95. You guys know how much work it takes to be independent. It's creating a scene and a vibe that you've made yourself indispensable in a different way. You know, there's a lot of agents that we don't do a ton of work with yet or are just starting to do more of because they're paying attention to the numbers that we're showing for other acts. But I mean, I was made by the independent agencies when I went out on my own 10 years ago. Frank Riley and Botch, and those were the guys that believed in me taking a chance in this really cool underserved college market. And there aren't a lot of those markets left. I was very lucky when I decided to come back to the music world. I've always believed in the boutique agencies and the indies as well. It was hard when I got started. All the major agencies were all territorial. And if you didn't do every level of shows, it was hard to get any of them. 
And again, you had to have those levels. You're absolutely right. So the state theater is where I started in Ithaca, but we needed a club. So the haunt came next. And I think Castaways was the real club in Ithaca in those days. And it's morphed like any small town, but you have to be able to serve the agent at every level for sure. Now the state was in trouble when you got involved, right? And you resurrected the business because now it's a successful business. Yeah. At one show, I think. I mean, that's your flagship, right? It is for sure. And that's hometown. You know, you protect your hometown and you love your hometown and that's where you put your heart and soul. So we did 32 shows in that building last year and we'll do a lot more than that this year that we're on a great pace, but it was in trouble. It was owned by a historic preservation organization that was trying to be a presenting house. And they brought in a kid who was running it, who would be like an APAP regular, you know, bow tie wearing, let's book Broadway on a stage with four foot of wing on one side and eight foot on the other. And there was no way it was going to work. And he tripled or quadrupled the debt in one year. Quadrupled the debt. Yes. It was like a million bucks, I think. And it turned up three or four million when I took over. Guy should be in government. He's perfect. But anyway, so he moved on and I started giving Ithaca what it wanted. Like his vision was, I am the cultural hand of God. You will like Broadway and stuff that didn't work in Ithaca. I gave Ithaca what it wanted. I booked Lyle Lovett and Arlo Guthrie and things like that, that made sense for that sort of old grizzled hippie community that started what Ithaca is. But there's also the educated population as well. So it grew from there. I started to do some indie rock stuff for the students. I have this vision of you as the pimp of Ithaca. Like, (laughs) what you want, baby? Right. And it was funny because people were very price sensitive in those days. But when, you know, you're doing a 50K an offer for Lyle and you don't have, I mean, look, I go back to my first week as DSP in 2008, 2009. And one of the first shows I did was Three Girls and Their Buddy with Frank Riley. And I became Frank Riley's Monday night guy. Like I, every show that Frank sold me in Ithaca, I was delivering sold out shows on Monday nights somehow because they were starved for music in that town. It didn't matter what we did, when we did it, they wanted more. And as we've grown over the years, the more we do, the more they want. You did one of the most entertaining things I've ever seen in the industry. You did a TED Talk. I did, yes. It was polished. It was well thought out. It was a great presentation. They have that down to a science for like these TEDx talks. They help. They give you people to coach you. They give you some ideas. Yours was exceptionally good. Well, thank you. From start to finish, it defined what a concert promoter does. Well, I told my story and I didn't know how else to do it. And they gave me all these ideas. You could do this. You could do that. I'm like... I only know my story and I'm going to tell it better if I do it that way. And to be honest, I wish they taped the day before because the, there was no technical issues. It was awesome. I was happy with how it came out because I told my story in the industry, but at the same time, I told how we saved a theater, how we did these fish festivals, how we built Oma Gang and how people in small towns can resurrect themselves. And when Bill Graham first left Brooklyn to come upstate, it was the Concord Hotel. That was my hometown. When I was a kid, it was still open. You know, it was on the way out, but I'll still call him a mentor, even though I never got to work for him directly. My yeah. first gig in the the industry was with his son at Music Unlimited and Dave Fry in New York. And we did a series of shows up near my hometown in 1991 with Fish and Blues Traveler, the early jam band days at Arrowhead Ranch. And Bill came in at the end and saw that I was this, you know, 18 year old kid and his son and all those guys were a little older than me. They did more drugs than me. I just wanted a job so bad. And I busted my ass. And I, I, I still remember the day that the sheriff came out and was going to shut the thing down because no one knew they needed permits. And my mom and his daughter were like best friends. Sheriff Joe Wasser shows up. He's like, what the fuck are you guys doing here? You can't, you can eat permits. And I'm like, Joe, how are you? And I think that might've been the day Bill was there. I, I don't remember. It's very fuzzy for me those days. They called me Action Dan. I'm almost embarrassed to say it, but to this day, all those dudes still, Billy Cohen and Tom Gruber, they still refer to me that. Chris Bowman, who's a tour manager. Well, we got to bring that back. Action yeah, Dan. Action Dan. Well, it's because when they needed something, I just knew what to do. You know, I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was a plumbing, heating and air conditioning contractor. And I watched him every night. His name was on the side of the truck, right? So he, no matter what anybody did, it represented him. 
you know, and that's how I run our business. Like everyone we hire, every venue we use. And if I'm not there for the show, I want them to pretend they're me. You know, I learned this at a very young age that you get out of it what you put in it. If you can treat people better, you're going to be successful. I've never once let money motivate me. It's always been just doing a better job than I did the day before. And I learned that from my dad, you know, and, and losing him three years ago, it's been an even bigger motivator because the last show he saw was we did one of the last BB King shows in Ithaca. And he was a little skeptical for years. You know, he lent me 10 grand. I had 10 grand when I started that. That's how DSP became something. 20 grand and let's fucking go, you know? Did you get to pay that back? In the end, he didn't ask. I offered plenty of times, but he just liked coming to shows and meeting people and seeing how he would stand to the side and watch the respect that I was getting from people and watch the growth through the number of years. And that night was pretty special. Like to see him stand at the back with a smile and just see a full house. And it was special to have him show up for that. That was the last show he got to see. In order to reintroduce him to Arlo Guthrie, he used to hang out at the Gaslight Cafe with him here in the city. So to me, everything I do today, I want, I want want him to be proud of what it is. You know. Let's talk about the company. You guys have got a full team now. We do. We're uh, we're up to six people. Three years ago at APAP, it was me and a laptop still. You know, I had some interns and some help. And every year I'd come here and this is a funny story between John and I. I'm like, maybe this is the year you're going to leave and we'll work together. And I never had the guts to hire him. I never thought I could afford that kind of salary. He books shows like nobody's business. Nobody books more shows than this guy or loves it anymore. But we decided three years ago that by the end of the year, let's find a way to, to make this happen. He only told me a year into our partnership that he still didn't believe, even though he said that. But a month later, I got a call from Daryl Hall about booking his club. You know, I didn't believe it was him. I'm like, who is this? You know, sing a song. I can prove it's you, you know, and, and he did. And it was funny. And I, I, I listened to him and I'm like, well, let me think about it. I'm, I, I'm pretty maxed out as one person. And about two hours later, I got a call from John and it didn't hit me until like two in the morning when I woke up. I'm like, Daryl's house and the Iron Horse are pretty much the same room. He offered me this much. It's enough to pay half his salary. It's got to work. So we rolled the dice in February. We went to Polestar. There was no news that year at Polestar in Nashville. We were the news. Everybody wanted to talk to us and see how we came together. And John was was very happy to be in business for himself. And there's some synergy there. I mean, you guys are similar to me and Jason, where it's just like the sums of the part are much greater when you put them together. Oh, absolutely. And like we said, yin and yang in a lot of ways. One, you got to step back a little bit on the booking side and run the company. I mean, as you've grown to six people, you know what it's like. There, I don't know how many is in your organization now, but there's a lot of people. There's a lot more just business work to do, right? So my job has changed. His job has changed. We've brought in a director of marketing now. We've got another junior talent buyer with us now who's here for the first time. So we're handing stuff down the chain has given John more time to book more shows. Like we were saying earlier that the early days you'd get one avail for your market. Now you're getting the artist is in the Northeast. Where do you want to do it? Those are the best calls to get, you know? So for me, it's growing into being a business leader at the same time. And I learned a lot of that in the couple of years I took off from the music industry and the same thing. I ran my dad's business when he got sick for a couple of years and uh, it helped me learn a lot about how to manage people. I didn't know shit about plumbing, but I ran the company. I read books about how to sell more high efficient stuff. I'm still, I went to Cornell and I'm an environmentalist at heart. So I was selling people more efficient stuff. You know, it was the same thing. I guess it's the same as selling tickets, right? It's just putting the right thing out there and telling people why they want it. That's our job. You've gotten involved with co-promoting with some other people and backing them. Are you doing that with anybody else now? Not so much. I mean, it was a nice experiment for a friend down South. We did a few shows. It was funny to see my name show up in a few markets where I knew people, but we're really focused on our exclusive rooms and growing from them. You know, for me, the state in Ithaca, the club in Ithaca, Oma Gang. Oma Gang was a venue that's you saw a lot of in that TED Talk thing. And, and that's something we built from start to finish. You know, it was a place that I thought in five years I could build a unique enough experience that artists would come to us and want to play there. And that's exactly what's starting to happen. Over the last few years, Modest Mouse, Wilco, they've all asked to play that venue, which has been great. 
The outdoor thing seems to have really grown for you guys. Amazing season last year. It was like, I was looking at was the Avets, Old Crow, it was like maybe Gil. I was looking at that lineup and I was like, if Jason were to take a venue and build his dream lineup, <laughs> that would be it. It would be that. Yeah. You guys really nailed a great season. That's like I said, I wanted to build a place that people come to and feel like it's an off day where they play a show. The Avets bring their families when they come up. They put a two day, three day thing out of it. It started with baseball fans, to be honest. Jeff Tweedy wanted to see the Hall of Fame play a show. Ben Gibbard from Death Cab back in 2012. I'd bring him in the Hall of Fame. I got to know those guys. They get the backstage tour. They hear the weird stories. They see all the stuff. We go down in the cold storage, put on the white gloves, hold Stan Musial's bat or the Chicago Cubs. So, you know, whatever team they like, they pull out some shit to show them. And it's a pretty, it makes a really fun day out of it. A reason to come visit you soon. Yeah, please do that. And Memorial Day is the best because they do the classic baseball game on Saturday. So whoever's playing comes out and sings, take me out to the ball. We had Modest Mouse sing, take me out to the ball game in front of 7,000 people. Sharon Jones saying God bless America one year. Awesome. Yeah, she was a good friend and she recovered when she was sick right around Cooperstown. So it's near and dear to my heart, you know, and we're starting to do that at the Pines in Northampton now. Nice little 2100 outside venue. John's bread and butter right there. We did Gil and uh, Dave there and we did Old Crow last summer. Is John still in Chicago? He's in Chicago. Yep. He's at the whim of his wife. Just finished her dissertation. So where she winds up, hopefully in the Northeast at a college is where he'll wind up. But How often do you guys see each other? A lot more than you think. For a while, he was covering almost all the North Hampton shows. He's got a baby now turning a year old. So he traveled a lot less last year, but he flies into Ithaca for meetings. He'll cover shows in Northampton. He could actually get on a plane in Chicago, fly to Boston, grab his in-laws car and be in Northampton quicker than me getting there from Ithaca, which was great. But a lot of times we meet out there eight, 10 times a year for sure. And then in the summer, he's at every Elma Gang show because it's just so much fun. Me and Jason are in different offices. So I, I get that. It's a telephone slack kind of relationship. Well, we're three offices now. You know, we hired someone in Northampton, our new marketing directors there. Having someone there, well, John will travel less, which is good. He'll travel when we need to meet up and talk. But in today's world, you can make that work. It's great. How much accounting are you doing yourself? Or do you guys have a controller now? No, it's me. Still me. You're doing it all. John says I count the nickels and he books most of the shows. But and in my head, I believe that I don't do as much booking. But you know, most of the Oma Gang stuff happens on my watch and a lot of the state theater stuff too. So how many shows do you guys do in a year? If you count the club at Daryl's house, it's a little over 600. It's a lot of volume. Yeah. And that's why I say Sanders is a hell of a, you know, he, he books Daryl's house like it's in his sleep. He was doing the Iron Horse for 10 years and he just knows how to fill that kind of room. But our, our growth lately has been booking rooms where we don't put our name on stuff. Like there's a lot of little theaters around the Ithaca area and around upstate New York, Bethel Woods. We do the small room there. Do you have the risk on those shows or you just, is it a no, booking we, deal? No, we, we book them and then hand them off and we'll, we'll look over the contracts and, and, you know, it's almost like a middling thing, you know, but we know what works in those rooms. We kind know how, how the AC them. deal works in a lot of those yeah, venues. I, I guess so. Yeah. I mean, and the pet project for me this year is Babeville in Buffalo. It's such a beautiful room. And we've been in there for four or five years, just sort of throwing a few things in here and there. I, I'm never a guy that likes to go in a market and compete with anyone else. But this is such a nice room. I went out there for a show at the end of last year and I'm like, why are we not doing more here? And I met with Scott Fisher who owns the place. And I'm like, you know what the problem is? It's a little too costly. We don't need stacks and racks. We need a full PA. We need better lights. I don't need to spend $3,000 on production on every show. And then I can give you volume. And I went in, I said, look, I'll take less. I know you have to invest in the building. We'll figure out a way you pay us a couple bucks a ticket on everything that's sold. We will put more volume in your room because I want that room to succeed. And we found a way to turn a 1200 seater into a room that looks good with 400, 800, 600, whatever it is. So we come up with a few different deals and that's the goal for this year. You walk in there and it's just like magnificent. 
practice. Bands should be playing that room more. And that's my job to figure out who's going to go in there. So how many shows have you guys got that up to now? We just announced Shovels and Rope went up real strong with that. We got a Tommy Manual date in there, Mountain Goats, a couple other things. Tommy seems exactly right for that room. I mean, look, what are we good at? We do a lot of indie folk, indie rock. We were talking about this at lunch today. I don't know that we're the best at reaching the college students in Ithaca. You know, we did 32 shows at the State Theater. Maybe three of them, four of them were for the student population. But when there's a smart college town, there's a population that appreciates good music. And that's what we're pretty good at bringing to town. You know, there was a lack of that in upstate New York. That Rust Belt had an, a tremendous opportunity for someone who's aggressive to go into some new rooms and make it work. And we've made Ithaca a bigger market than Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, any of them at this point. When you're figuring out who's working for you, is that something that plays to the brand that is Dan Smalls Presents? When we went through hiring some people, it was one, it was new to me. But when John and I interviewed people, we interviewed folks that had experience, some that didn't. And I think we've more often erred toward people that we could sort of teach our ways to and help them do it the way we do it and learn on their way up. When I got started, I was 18, 19 years old. But in those offices, I was filing things. I was faxing things, contract. I was really tedious work. I was willing to do it. It all. I read everything. I listened to every conversation that came across the office. And that's how I learned the business. That's how I met people, you know, treating people right, knowing who they are, what you're supposed to do. That's how you learn. You're not going to like the younger kids coming out of schools, the interns we have, they all want to do it. Like I can't tell you how many kids I've had in the office hanging posters and helping out at shows. And three weeks later, when we were called Dan Smalls Presents, we'd hire someone else to be Joe Smith Presents on a poster and book in another band in town. It's like they all think they can do it in a minute. And I say, good luck, you know, go ahead, try it. See what it's like. When I was 19 years old, working at the Haunt in college, the owner would let me book my own shows and lose my own money, you know, to learn how this business works and, and what you have all in. There was a time where I think I lived on a sack of potatoes for a month because that's all I could afford because I lost everything on two or three shows in a row at, you know, 22 years old. You should struggle. And it's not because it should be hard. It's because when you have everything on the table, you will create and think and strategize Every moment of the day, what am I going to do to get out of this hole? I mean, we just put on the road one of the worst tours that we've ever worked on. And I'm so proud of my staff. 35 shows later, we lost a seventh on that tour of what I thought we were going to lose. And when it was said and done, my staff looked at it the same way I looked at it. This is our livelihood. What do we need to do to get out of it? And they sold it the way I would have sold it. They stayed up at nights. I was getting emails from marketing people at 3 a.m. What about this, Dan? Can we try this? Do you think we can sell management on this? It's a testament to good management, right? That's what you want to be. You want to set an example that people want to be like. And our company has become that. You know, we got together in December. We had a little Christmas thing, holiday thing. We went to a great restaurant, sat in the Goodfellas room and had steaks and had an amazing time. And that was the first moment where I felt that pride of building this team that is making this happen. You know, you can't do that many shows in a year without a great team. You really can't. And they're stretched thin at times. You know, sometimes we had all those Oma Gang shows you talked about last summer and we started our own little mini one day festival with Ithaca's only successful, you know, or, or biggest successful band, X Ambassadors are from Ithaca. So we did that little festival for them. You guys got great coverage on that. The press was yeah, amazing. it was, uh, well, we did it all for charity. That helped. The press was good. Um, but you, know, you guys got national attention on that launch. We, we did. We did. We had almost a half a million views of that video. It was mind blowing. I don't know how it happened 
happen, but thank you to whoever made it happen because I, I was completely surprised. You know, we booked the Roots, great band for the first year. It was a great look. We had seven, eight other bands. Tayshi, K Flay was on the way up. It was a great lineup. And doing a, the first ever show in Stewart Park in Ithaca, dealing with red tape, it was it was hard. I was wondering how people were going to get in and out. And it was literally a seamless day. I put so much of myself into it that the morning of the festival, 10 o'clock, I felt so bad. I didn't know how I was going to get through the day. At one o'clock, I was home having soup taking a break while the team was running the event. By three o'clock, I had a miraculous recovery and was back there for the rest of the Were show. Were you physically but, sick? Just, yeah, I, I couldn't go anymore that day. I was just done. I had to take a two hour nap and I had like 101 fever. I woke up, I was back to normal. It was amazing. Just ran out of it, like hit the wall. I was done. My job was finished. The people were there, but it, it showed me how much I put into it in that first year. Who are the guys in this business that you model your company after? What are the guys that you look up to? Well, I mean, it all starts with Bill Graham, you know, because his legend in Monticello, where I grew up, was so big. He's the guy in the first few chapters of his book. He talks about people that I know lived up the street from me, you know, all the guys who worked at the Concord Hotel. So the irony of my first real job being with Music Unlimited and, and his son is not lost on me, you know? And that was a job that wasn't out there. There was no job posted. I just heard about some of these shows happening near my hometown. I walked into this office. They had this kid, Chris Bowman, running it. And Chris, I think, is a tour manager now. He lives in Charlottesville. And I said, you need me. I know this town. you got to put me on this thing. I I think I'd booked one show. I, did a, I didn't get on the concert commission at Cornell, but I, I booked uh, bands at fraternity parties. And the first real show I did was Blues Traveler and Spin Doctors in 1990 at Bailey Hall. Segway show, right? Music never stopped for four Four hours, spin doctors go on, they get into a jam at the end. Next thing you know, it's Blues Traveler playing, right? So we did this show and it was the early days. I had a flat with Blues Traveler for 2000 bucks. I had, I think this was in the TED talk too. I, I think I paid spin doctor 750, a couple thousand for sound. And I sold 1300 tickets at 10 bucks. I had 13,000 bucks. By the time I was done, there was like 4,000 in cash left over. I'm like, this is a great fucking business. I'm going to be a good kid. I'll go take half of it up to the Bursar's office tomorrow morning and pay off my college debt, be good to my parents. And I showed up there with 2000 cash. And the woman's like, what are you doing? This is not how it works. You can't bring the, where'd you get that cash? You know? So they fucking sent me out of there with, with, with the money. I got to keep it all and throw parties with it. And that sort of started my college promotion days, but I knew I knew nothing about business. So I switched from engineering to business management the next day. The next day. Pretty much the next day. Engineering sucked. When I went to college, I didn't know what I was going to do. They said, you're good at math. You're good. I was the, the, the 4.0 student in high school, you know, because it just came really easy. And I went there and I didn't know what to do. I, they said, you like math, you like science, but you should be an engineer. I'm like, all right, I'll go to be an engineer. But luckily I picked Cornell where there were seven colleges where it would be really easy to switch, you know, like RPI or MIT or any other places I could have gone didn't make any sense to me. You know, I was like, if I was there, I was stuck. You should be an engineer. It sounds like a Shep Gordon telling the Jimi Hendrix story. You're Jewish. You should should manage who Alice Cooper. <laughs> Well, it's funny how things happen. And that's, I mean, I had no plans, but I mean, I fell in love with that town. It was great. And, and I majored in the Haunt Nightclub and I minored at Cornell. How I got through it to this day with so how few classes that I went to were there. And a lot of my mentors were not in the music business. I took an entrepreneurship class as a sophomore there and I got to build a delivery company, which is now something that's happening a lot. But we built a company that delivered groceries from the store and that was our, our project. And I learned a lot about how to build a company at that point. So all those things have come to play over the last 
10 years. When you and me started, even the major promoters were indie promoters. They were considered majors, but they were indies. This is free roll up. There were companies like Jam. There was Pace Concerts and Contemporary. Shit, Don Law was huge. I was the mini tiny little thorn in his ass, but he hated me for doing a handful of shows. I worked for Great Northeast Productions there, which was Dave Worland's company. I was with him for, I think, the first four or five of the fish festivals, and he wound up doing, I think, the first seven or eight. Yeah, those guys knew how to do a big party. Big you know, party. It was really fun. It was, you know, no one knew what was going on that first year. I think I came on right before the first one. Yeah, it was special. You know, it was the first real North American festival in a lot of ways where people camped and hung out and mind-blowing stuff. Just, it's hard to remember what happened at them because they all just run together and there was so few of us running this thing with so many people. But I was sort of his assistant at it. Whatever he needed, I was there to pick up the slack. There are less and less promoters coming up behind us. There are club bookers, there are clubs doing shows, but it's different. Do you feel that the next generation of promoters are fewer and far between? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, how many people in our industry these days, the, the real question is who uses their own money? I think it's going to be me against you someday for that award, you know, because there's so few of us left that fit in that category of not working for a bigger company. Look, if I lose money, I might not be able to pay my mortgage or take care of my kids or my staff. That's how I motivate myself in so many ways. So I don't know. I don't think about it that way anymore, but it's the bane of our existence, right? It's your own shit on the line. But even when I worked for other people, I thought of it that way. I never wanted to lose someone else any money. And I think that's why John and I get along because he's always thought that way too. Well, we're in a business where you have to lose money. It's just part of the game in developing X and it's fine. We've moved on, but it becomes part of that thing because I used to stay up at night worrying about the $400 I was going to lose on a show because I had to pay rent. Just like you, I've been doing this since I was a you know, kid. I was working at Subway and then I'm going to cover my Cherry Pop and Daddy show. Sometimes I'd be late and I'd still have my apron on with mustard on. And But it's how you handle yourself, especially these days when it's challenging that make who you are as a promoter. For us, like I said, I appreciate you bringing up that TED talk because it was six months of my life and I hate to keep coming back to it, but I hadn't thought about it in a long time. It was good to hear. But for me, I think our motivation is 100% in it, is, comes across in that. I've never let money be the motivating factor. Everybody's in business to make a living, right? And I want to grow each year. But if you make that your goal, then the artist experience, the fan experience, it's going to suffer. And I can't tell you how many bands come into our rooms and see how we treat them and what we do just to go one step above. The hats and swag is one thing. But you know, when a band's coming through and you have to take the time to call the manager and say, what are they really into at this point? And oh, they're reading novels about this and you leave one in their dressing room, that's a moment that not many people think to do anymore. You know, and I learned that from Dave Worland. I learned that from other people I worked for. I learned that from John Peterson at The Haunt. You know, so there are mentors that brought those things along, but taking that and running with it and going to the next level and making the experience better. Well, hey, that's how your business is going to grow. And then the money will take care of itself. Dan Smalls, one of the best independent promoters in the country. So I'm proud to call a friend. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Dan Smalls Presents is having a real moment in the industry. They are well liked and the team is just doing great business. Look for their entire team. I'm Sarah Beasley from Wolf Trap, and I'm on Promoter 101. Celebrating birthdays this week, February 23rd to March 1st, 2018. On Friday, the 23rd, wishing a happy birthday to Deb Finstermacher. Saturday, Jessica Christensen. On Sunday, wishing a happy birthday to Ari Solomon, the Tobin Sinners, Aaron Zimmerman, and BNP presents Bob Nosick. 
Monday, the 26th of February, Dan Millen, APA's Brian Waymer, Danny Owens, Dave Fry, and Mike Quinn. On Tuesday, happy birthday to Jay Scabo. Wednesday, Sophie Reeves, Steve Bursky, Troy Dillinger. And on Thursday, the 1st, wishing happy birthday to Chris Scully, AG's Ali Harnell, and Brian Armoni. Happy birthday to all of you from the gang at Promoter 101. John Holiday, Promoter 101. If you want to reach out to us, you can always send us an email to steiny at promoter101.net. The quote of the week comes to us from AJ McLean. Music is love. Love is music. Music is life. And I love my life. Thank you. Good night. We'll be back next week with an ILMC preview. Plus, Ticketmaster North America's David Marcus will join us to explain exactly how Verified Fan works. Plus, we've got Agent to Diplo and Run the Jewels Paradigm's Sam Hunt and Invictus Entertainment's Jim Cressman joining us for our featured interviews. That's a whole lot on Promoter 101 next week. Be sure to tune in. Until then, we're wishing you sold-out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers. This is Julia Frank from Wizard Promotions in Germany, and we're on Promoter 101.